0: So basically I want to thank, you know, the city that that kicked me out, that fired me. I'm as free as I can be. And I discovered a new business model in real estate.
1: What's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Kraschowski, and welcome to episode 82 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Esther Jacobs, who is one of the most impressive people uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting. In the early 2000s, Esther started a nonprofit organization which helped raise over 16 million euros for charity. She's one of the youngest people to be knighted in the Netherlands, has published over 30 books. And for the last couple of years, she has made quite a bit of news because the Dutch government, the government that knighted her uh, a few years prior, uh, actually renounced her citizenship for being a digital nomad. During this interview, Esther shared the story of how all of this happened, what led the Dutch government to actually renounce her citizenship, why she decided to stand her ground and fight for the rights of nomads when she actually had some opportunities to kind of uh, slip through the cracks and actually get her citizenship reinstated. But she decided to use her profile um, in the Netherlands to actually highlight these issues. And we also discussed where she sees the future of the relationship between global citizens and digital nomads and countries and governments is headed, uh, how governments should handle uh, global citizens who don't necessarily fit into uh, the boxes as easily as uh, regular citizens. But before we jump into this interview, uh, I do have a new five-star review to share with you guys. And this one is from Slappy ZSGH who says, remote work and business is the future of our working world. Mikko is on a hot topic here and something that really helps people break out of their normal routines to see see a new way of life. Thank you so much, Slappy, for that uh, review. I really appreciate it, and I'm glad that you are enjoying the podcast. If you're listening, uh, please head over to uh, your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review Or if you would rather uh, share this podcast with a friend, send them a text and say, hey, uh, I think that you would really love this podcast and send it over to them. I would greatly appreciate that. Uh, It's always uh, good to bring in new listeners. But all right, you guys, I won't uh, wait off any longer. This is an amazing interview. I love talking with Esther. She's so impressive uh, and has quite an amazing story to share with you guys. So without further ado, let's dive into this awesome Podcast episode with with Esther Jacobs. All right. Well, Esther, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Yeah. Thank you for inviting me.
1: I am uh, super excited to talk to you. And I was doing, you know, research for this episode. And I went to your website, as I do for every guest. And you know how everybody on their websites has that uh, as seen in, you know, like little bar on the website. And I'm always used to seeing, you know, like Forbes, New York Times, maybe something like this. And then I noticed that on yours, you have Survivor. And I've never seen that before anywhere else. And then I dug in deeper and I found out that you were on a European version of Survivor. Is that, did I mess something up there, or is that true?
0: No, it's true. It's true. I survived for three and a half weeks on an uninhabited island in Malaysia for the European Survivor show. It's been a while ago, but I still vividly remember. Yeah.
1: So, okay. We, we we need to touch on this a little bit because I just found out about a month and a half ago that my fiance never seen Survivor. And so we started watching like the original Survivors, like the first seasons. How, like, why did you decide that that was something you wanted to do? And like, what was the process to get onto Survivor?
0: Well... It wasn't that I actually wanted to participate in Survivor. It was more that I was trying to get away from the situation I was in. I um, I had collected 16 million euros for uh, charities in the Netherlands. And then I found out that those charities didn't want to share how they spent that money. So for seven years altogether, I was in the ch- charity world trying to promote transparency, while most of the charities didn't want me there. So it was it was very, very difficult and I was tired and almost depressed and I just wanted to get away. So one day I was driving away from a charity uh, conference and in the car, there was this radio announcement. This is the last day to apply for a survivor. And it was like two months of an uninhabited Island, no emails, no charities, you know, and I just applied. And because I was quite well-known at that time in the Netherlands because of this charity collection. I think I stood out in all the thousands of applications and I got invited for an interview. And of course the interviews, you know, you have to fill out 25 pages of, of you know, information and you have to stand out as well. And, um, um, I was very honest. So when they asked me, okay, so if you're in a group of people and uh, you find uh, some food, how are you going to go about, you know, dividing the food? And I'm like, I'm not a people's person and I eat every two hours. So I think by the time I find a mango, I think I will have eaten it, you know, during the discussion of how we're going to share it. And they looked at me like, (gasps) because I think everybody gives socially acceptable answers and they're looking Mm -hmm. for people who will make... um, like drama or discussion and I didn't know and I didn't think about it you know I didn't want to join survivor I just wanted to get away and I was very honest but before I knew it I was flown to Malaysia to you know to be actually normally survivor for people who know are two groups on two islands and then they have to vote off people they have to do contests to win food to gain immunity whatever so it's those two groups of people But every year there is uh, a surprise, something hidden. And in my year, they hid two people in a cave, and that was me and somebody else. So for two weeks, I was hidden in this cave without meeting any other participants, without food, without contests, without anything. And the others didn't know that we were there. So when we were finally presented, the rest didn't want to accept us. And then they used that situation to create you know, people to leave their comfort zone because friendships have been formed. You kind of know mm-hmm. where you stand. They changed all the rules. They mixed up all the groups. They made us leaders, put us on a platform with a medallion around our neck and a flag in our hand, and said that, you know, they couldn't vote us off. We were, we had immunity. So my group was just infuriated with all these changes and they projected it onto me. They didn't want to meet me they didn't want to shake my hand they didn't want to talk to me they didn't want to uh, share their food with me so it was war from the beginning that was exactly what the production wanted but for me it was like hey i've just been in a cave for two weeks you right. know I just want to say hello <laughs> Take it easy. You been? what have you done and and actually looking back, it was exactly what happened in the charity world. I was mm. very naive. I was bringing money, saying, hey, guys, look, I've got all this money for you. And people didn't want me. They felt threatened. They felt uh, like they couldn't control me. Where does this girl f- come from? You know, she doesn't want a career in our world. She, she We have no strings to pull. And uh, exactly the same thing happened on Survivor. So I thought I was getting away from it. And on an unhabited island, I experienced the same thing as in the charity world. And that's where I learned that, you know, you always take yourself with you wherever you go. And the same patterns will play in your work, in your relationships. And so ever since, I even used the survivor experience in my, you know, TEDx presentations, uh, keynote speeches, the books that I write, because it's, it's such a... Um, an interesting uh, view on humanity, on on group behavior, on personal development. So all in all, it's been an interesting experience, but I wouldn't really repeat it.
1: (laughs) You obviously had a pretty intense experience. I think even for like a regular survivor experience, it sounded like you had a much more intense experience of that. So was that kind of like the key lesson that you walked away from it and that you've brought back into your life is sort of these like really understanding and having been through very difficult, like, like people kind of situations. Like, like what is the thing that you feel like you've walked away with the most from there?
0: I think that what I already knew is that I'm, I'm pretty solid as a person. Like I'm not insecure or, or, Mm. you know, I just know who I am and what I can do, but This, actually, this experience confirmed that to a degree that I wasn't even aware of. Because why did people get so unsettled by me is because I was just being me. And apparently everybody plays a role in those, um, in those things, these reality shows. And that's also what the production stimulates. So the production couldn't believe that I stayed in this situation. And every day they talked to me and they pretended to be nice. Like, Hey, Esther, how are you doing? How are you coping? Do you think you can last another day? You're so lonely. Everybody's against you. And I was like, well, I, I hate this situation. I feel very lonely, but you know, I'm just hoping that somebody will see the light today and that things will change. And while they pretended to be caring, The moment I said that, they stood up, they walked away with the walkie-talkies. Yes, we're on, the show can go on, you know, she's uh, going through another day. And so I realized that the only person I could rely on was myself, you know. I was very, very lonely. But I knew the reactions of the other people were, were unfair and unjust. Even though everybody was saying that I was wrong, I felt that, you know, I wasn't and that it wasn't fair what was happening.
1: Mm. You mentioned um, that the reason why you wanted to go on Survivor was because you were running this charity and uh, that was called Coins for Care. Can you talk a little bit about what that was? Because it sounds like uh, a pretty interesting uh, kind of uh, charity to run. And how did that lead you to, you know, become location independent and sort of join the, you know, quote quote unquote, digital nomad movement?
0: Well, actually, the digital nomad thing already happened before. Um, ever since I was like 17, I've been traveling. Um, traveling by myself, without a plan, without a lot of budget. And just, you know, before it was digital and before it was popular, I was already uh, doing this. And actually, for this charity project, I stopped traveling for a while. Because um, mm. when the euro was introduced in the Netherlands in, in 2002, I realized that we all as frequent travelers in europe we all have this reserve of foreign coins that normally you think you'll bring to germany next year or to france next year and you always forget but you know there'll be another year and with the introduction of the of the euro we couldn't do that anymore so i realized people had coins um, paper money they could exchange for euros but coins they couldn't so um I thought if I collect all these leftover worthless coins uh, for charity, then people have a reason to give it away. And I can, um, maybe if you cannot exchange a handful of coins, but a truck full of coins, you know, for charity, they will have to accept. So that's how it started. And of course, it was very difficult. I had no experience. I didn't know anybody. Nobody knew me. It was before the internet, so everything had to be done by fax and letters and whatever. It was really complicated. And, um, but in the end, um, it's a long story. But in the end, I did get like um, 4,000 locations in the Netherlands, like banks, supermarkets, gas stations, uh, where I could put boxes where money was collected. And I had 1,000 volunteers that would empty those boxes and take it to 150 collection points. And then there was a company in England who hand sorted all this money and took it back to the country of origin in exchange for euros and altogether that resulted in 16 million euros.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: That's a lot of money. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I didn't realize it at the time, but I'm pretty proud of what I've done, you know, considering the circumstances and making no expenses, everything went to uh, to charity. Um and um I even got knighted by the Dutch Queen for this. I was one of the youngest people ever uh to be knighted. The other young people were like Olympic uh gold medalists uh and uh, and I was just you know a girl next door who did something for charity. But um yeah, it was a huge experience, also very difficult, and and also like I said, uh, the charities didn't want me around because I did everything different and faster and cheaper than they did. So, instead of being happy with the money that I brought them, they were kind of resisting and trying to stop me and it was really it was so um disappointing and and depressing that I just wanted to get away after all these years and that's where I ended mm. up on uh, on the uh, survivor island
1: The reason why I wanted to talk to you for this for this podcast and that uh, people haven't really heard this yet, but you were actually kind of uh, if I can say it this way kicked out of. The Netherlands, they they kind of didn't want you as a citizen anymore. You started this amazing charity, uh, raised all of this money, and uh, on top of that, you've been knighted by a country. How do you go from being knighted in one country to then that, that same country kind of saying like you're not a citizen anymore? Because you know this is really important for a lot of people that and like I've been talking about this a lot recently. Like I mentioned before, we kind of hit record is that you need to have backups and people. I'd never heard of that happening to somebody before. What happened to you? So how, do you, how did you go from, you know, being knighted by the Netherlands to then kind of like not really being recognized as a citizen by the Netherlands anymore?
0: Yeah, that was a big surprise for me as well. There were like 10 years in between, but I was living in the same city that I was knighted in by the mayor, by the queen. And I was an honorary citizen, you know, and, and I traveled a lot because after the, the charity project stopped, I resumed uh, traveling again. So I spent quite a fair amount of time outside of the Netherlands. Uh, I own a home there. I paid taxes. I, you know, I was insured. I had bank accounts, everything. And... One day, I just went to the city hall to renew my passport, um, like all the other years before. And they told me, uh, excuse me, we cannot renew your passport because you don't live here anymore. And I was like, that must be a mistake. You know, tell me what's going on and then we can set this straight. And said, no, we cannot show you your file because it's privacy protected. I'm like, "Uh, it's my privacy it's
1: your file, right?
0: <laughs> my file, but they wouldn't show it to me. So I had to wait for people to contact me and they didn't. And it was like an investigation going on against me. And they put a fraud team on me. But I'm like, fraud, you know, that's when you don't pay taxes or you take money illegally, and I was paying taxes. I had my own home, I was an entrepreneur, everything was legal. But later I found out that when you're an exception they don't have a box or a team for exceptions. They only have a team for fraud. So they put me in the fraud team and then the whole machine Mm. goes off You know, with with home visits, with with checking everything, all your accounts are frozen. Um, And basically what I found out much, much later is that there is a law in the Netherlands and most countries have a law like this, that if you spend less than four months or six months in some countries in one location, then you cannot be registered there because they assume that you live somewhere else. So even though I could prove that this house in the Netherlands was my fixed base, that I kept my stuff there, I traveled, I always came back there, I didn't live anywhere else, they wouldn't accept it because they said this is the law. So I tried to reason with them it wouldn't work it became like really really big i didn't have a passport anymore you know i couldn't travel i Mm -hmm. couldn't visit my father for christmas so i put some pressure on them and because i knew so many journalists from the the charity time i informed them and they started questioning you know the mayor and uh posting in front of the town hall and that the city was really not happy with me and at one point i wrote a blog about my situation and I published it on Sunday night and on Monday morning, the next Monday morning, the ministers were asking questions in the government about my situation. So for three weeks they had meetings on my case and their conclusion was that this law of these four months was not really meant for people like me, but technically the city had applied it correctly. So there was nothing they could do for me. And at that point, I got deregistered from my own house in this city and in Holland and in most countries, the registration of everything is tied to your permanent residence address. When Mm -hmm. you don't have a permanent residence address, everything collapses. So I lost my pension, my voting rights, my health insurance, my bank accounts. My uh, company got deregistered from the Chamber of Commerce. My phone plan got canceled. Everything collapsed. And there was nowhere I could go. There was not like a higher office or a window or wherever, because the ministers had already decided. And in the whole country, there was only one organization that kept saying, Miss Jacobs, to us, you are, and will always be a cherished citizen of the Netherlands.
1: Oh, was it the taxes?
0: taxes. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. So they wanted me to pay taxes even though I had lost all my rights to social security, to voting, to anything. And it took three years to finally come to a settlement with the taxes. So now I officially don't pay taxes anywhere and I officially don't live anywhere. And I think I may be one of the very few recognized uh, non-existent people.
1: (laughs) So hold on. So what do you, because... This is the part about your story that really kind of confuses me because you were deregistered by, you know, your country, even though they said, like, we understand that this is not about you. But, you know, they kind of like, you know, said, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll pass it on to maybe like the next people uh, to deal with your case. So how did you. Obviously, you're now able to travel. You've been traveling since then. How did you kind of solve this and set yourself up as an like, you know, how did you get passports again? That kind of stuff?
0: Well, there's a lot of um steps that you have to take. Like even now, still like six years later, every month or every two months, I run into something that doesn't work anymore and that I have to solve. But the first thing was my passport. And uh, I found out there is a window in The Hague in uh, in the Netherlands for homeless people. And I can apply for a passport there, even though I still own, I even own a few apartments now. And, you know, I, I, I have a business and whatever. But I have to go to a window for homeless people to get a new passport. Um, I lost my driver's license and it took me like months to find out how I could get a new driver's license how I could keep my bank accounts, how I could get a phone plan. Um, uh, Health insurance, also a big thing. I was uninsured for a while and I got into a car accident in the Caribbean. And then I realized how important health insurance was. So I kept looking and looking for solutions and expat health insurances don't cover because, you know, they keep asking to what country are you uh, uh, transferred, you know, and I don't have another country. So I was in Mallorca in in Spain, where I spent some time in the IKEA. And in the IKEA family section, there was a big flyer talking about health insurance. And in the end, I got health insurance in IKEA family Mallorca, which covers me worldwide and which is even cheaper than most of the private health insurances that most people have.
1: Wait, so IKEA has their own health insurance?
0: no it's ikea family and then only on the spanish islands not on the mainland so it's really 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 like but
1: it's like a product of ikea
0: no it's actually mafra it's a big uh, insurer and they kind of i don't know licensed it or or branded it ikea family so in ikea you can get this insurance and it's i think 72 euros per month with worldwide coverage so 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 step by step I found solutions for everything but w- once you have a solution for one thing the next thing is falling apart so it's definitely not easy my goal has never been uh, to avoid taxes i was happy to pay taxes and to have this you know this this structure with with pension with social security with you know just some foundations that everybody has and and kind of takes for granted but i wasn't allowed to you know to stay registered and there has even been a committee commissioned by the the ministry in the netherlands to research this problem of digital nomads and if there is a solution and there was a very easy solution to have people register on a digital street So if I want to stay registered in the Netherlands, I could register myself on digital street number one, and then I would pay taxes. I would be, you know, people could find me. I would be registered. I would be a citizen in the Netherlands without an actual street. But the ministry that had actually commissioned this research then uh, took distance from it and said, no, 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 we're not going to do it. So they don't want a solution. They want the problem to go away. And we all know that the number of people becoming location independent gets bigger and bigger. So that puts uh, some other countries uh, in, you know, in in the spotlight, like Estonia, who's providing services for people like us. And uh, more and more countries are, are, uh, like, inventing digital nomad visa now. And so I think... Countries that react positively to this will have, you know, a lot of benefit from it. And countries like the Netherlands that have always been exploring countries uh, now suddenly are very conservative in this uh, area. And um, I hear regularly from journalists and people working for the ministry that I'm still a headache dossier. You know, whenever my name is mentioned, they go like, oh, please, no. (laughs) So Now both in the charity industry and in the Dutch government, I'm like a no-go area. Even though, you know, I've done nothing wrong. I'm just trying to change things for the better, make things more transparent, um, help to see opportunities and, and seize opportunities that this new world offers. But not everybody is open to that. And I think that's also a reality that we have to cope with. Um, and not try to focus on the things that don't work, but try to focus on the things and the people that, that do want to move forward. And that's something that I keep telling myself because you can get easily frustrated and burnt out when you keep focusing on the things that don't work. But I'm always here when, when some ministry, you know, wants my help with as like the wild cards. They put me in all kinds of brainstorm teams and um, think tanks. I'm always there. I'm always willing to contribute. And um, I don't have any hard feelings, but I keep communicating my story because I think it's important um, that governments and people know what could happen. And there's a lot of ways around this, you know, to register somewhere else, secret, whatever. But I thought since I'm in the spotlight anyway, let's make it very transparent. And I said, okay, if you say I cannot live here then tell me what to do, where should I register? What should Mm -hmm. I do? And nobody can tell me. And I keep asking that question because I know there needs to be a solution for future digital nomads. Those boundaries that we have, the borders that we have are artificial. Mm -hmm. You know, you see them on a map, but in reality, you don't see them. And the more um, fluid our world becomes with, with internet and cheap plane tickets and the same currencies, like we have the euro now, the the more fluid these boundaries become and, and young people don't, even realize you know everybody speaks english and what is the difference between somebody living 5 kilometers from a border on one side and 5 kilometers on the other side why are there different laws why you know are they not allowed to cross why do they have different currencies it's it's not realistic anymore because travel is so easy and and frequent of course now during covid it's a little bit different but <laughs> it's you know there are no boundaries why do we create boundaries instead of Seeing opportunities and trying to make things better.
1: Yeah, I think that has um, you know, I kind of um, it, it's kind of similar to like large corporations to startups. You know, is like these large businesses they might see like a small like subset of people that are n- not really interesting to them because they have such bigger issues to like deal with. But smaller countries function a lot more like startups, and like you know, you mentioned Estonia flexible.
0: that. Uh, innovative um, Mm -hmm. not resisting to change but seeing it as an opportunity i think that's big things yeah and you see bigger companies also starting to disappear you know they're they're having really difficult times and the the foundations that they were built on and that that those Registration systems were built on were very valid, you know, uh, a few decades ago because Mm -hmm. everything was location-based and everything was size-based and everything was growth-oriented. But times are changing and and nowadays a small foundation and flexibility and, and innovation are more important. And you also see a lot of startups and people move forward with plans that are not... Complete yet, because you cannot wait until something is perfect. You just have to move mm-hmm. and, and keep moving and adapt while you're moving, because nothing is going to go is, is going to slow down again. It's only going to go faster.
1: So, I, people listening might be a little bit um confused or frightened at this point because your story doesn't sound very different from my my own story or a lot of other people's stories. So, how come? Like, why did this happen to you, but it hasn't happened to so many other people who are digital nomads and are maybe U.S. citizens, but don't really spend a lot of time in the U.S.?
0: Well, every country has different rules. Um, But I found out that a lot of people, when they go travel, they just register with their parents or friends or neighbors, whatever. And most of the time, you know, the government never finds out. And I think it's fine if you do that but some people also get like a social security and then they travel with that you know that's not really fair to society I think if you especially if you live outside of the system you have you have to make sure that you don't just take something from a society you have to or be equal or or contribute to it um but I think if you if you travel and you register somewhere and you don't take any social security or whatever. Chances are very small that they'll find out. What happened to me is I had my mail forwarded by mail with a sticker. And I found out in Holland and many other countries, if you have a, a letter from the tax service or from the government and you want to forward it, the mail service doesn't forward it, but they send it back to the tax service of the mm. government. And that's where the, the exception fraud thing starts. They don't think, hey, what could be happening that's contact Esther. they think fraud and they start this whole thing mm-hmm. that you the machine that you can't stop
1: so you you almost raised the red flag for them and they caught you you like you might have kind of been able to you know go under the radar for them had that not happened
0: true and then afterwards i i could have Um, stop this whole thing by going under the radar. Like there's even many majors of of different cities in the Netherlands that offered me that I could register in their city. But I was like, but I wouldn't spend four months a year there. So then legally, you know, I would be committing fraud. So let's, while this is in the open, let's see if there is a legal solution for people like me. So I I willingly made my life more difficult by being in the spotlights because I thought many people cannot do it. And um, because they're afraid to lose, you know, their whatever, their, their house, their job, their registration, and there's no alternative. And for me, the world is my playground. So I found solutions mm. for everything. I registered my company in the British Virgin Islands. Uh, E-Estonia didn't uh, exist then. Otherwise, I would have registered in Estonia. But because I was spending a lot of time in the Caribbean, uh, the BVI was logical for me. Um, I got my health insurance, my passport. So everything solved itself. And even I turned this uh, challenge into an opportunity because when I traveled, I rented out my house sometimes. And that's how they caught me because the renters forwarded my mail. Mm. Um, But then when I said, okay, then, you know, if you won't let me back in the country, then I'll just, you know, move out completely. I rented out my house permanently. Later, I sold my house. With that money, I could buy some more small apartments in Amsterdam that I'm now renting out. So basically this I, I want to thank, you know, the city that that kicked me out, that fired me. Because because of that, now I have a business model, I have some passive income, I have a life that's even more free than ever because I don't have to do any administration, any, you know, registration anywhere. I'm as free as I can be and I discovered a new business model in real estate. So mm. You could be frustrated and feel like a victim and, and try to blame, you know, the people that caused it. But in the end, if you wait long enough, you turn things around, you can see the benefits. And and I really see that this is an opportunity that they offer to me without knowing it. And right now I help other people to um, find a way to be location independent and not to get uh, stuck in, in the system, uh, especially in the Netherlands. But uh, a lot of countries have similar rules.
1: Mm-hmm. Where do you see, you know, you obviously, you're very involved on this topic and, and trying to force governments to kind of recognize us as, uh, you know, citizens that they need to figure out how to work with. Where do you see this going in the next 10 years? Obviously, COVID has really accelerated. Um, the adoption of remote work and with that I think there will be more and more people who decide that hey I'm working remotely now I don't even have to be here I can be you know in another place so I think the number of digital nomads and location-dependent people are going to rise as well where do you think this goes in the next 10 years like what are kind of like what's the light at the end of the tunnel that you're that maybe you're seeing or or not seeing the governments are starting to recognize just where do you see that going
0: well I think it's gonna take a while because even now with remote work everybody is like okay this is temporary and if you ask a big company they start talking about yeah yeah but if our employee works from indonesia then we have we have tax laws and we have uh, responsibility and liability and whatever it's it's only going to be temporary because this is not a you know a sustainable model so they they keep putting barriers but that's what always happens with change right the conservative parties or the bigger parties Um, the traditional parties, they only see problems. But this is a movement that cannot be stopped, even before COVID. um, If you work remote in Amsterdam and you have to rent an expensive apartment and and, you you can work from home, then you can also work from a co-working space and then you can also work from Berlin or from South America or from Thailand with a lot less expenses. And then you know people say, "Oh, it's not fair, the competition." You know, the digital nomads, whatever. Well, you can try protect your market. You can try protect the old-fashioned system, but if you look at it from a from a world perspective, things are going to change.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's better to be prepared for it by experiencing remote work now, while you're maybe still employed or while the world is still confused. And then see opportunities and set yourself up for the future because this is the future whether travel will be restricted or not you can do a global how do you say geo arbitrage you know you can Mm -hmm. make your money in one place and spend it in another place you can uh, register in one place and live in another place you can have your company in one place and your taxes in another place so you can pick and choose what works best for you and countries that uh, move quickly and offer interesting, uh, options will be the countries that attract more digital nomads. And they're not just hippies with a laptop. There's also like real entrepreneurs with real businesses, uh, and, and real money that will contribute in the form of taxes or knowledge to the countries that they settle in.
1: What are so some I of the countries? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, completely agree with you. Like uh I I saw this article recently that said uh that when the car came out there were all these laws that tried to actually make it really difficult for the car industry to take off. Like there are all these like uh you know people who are protesting the car because it's gonna be so dangerous and so loud and that it's kind of stuff. And I horses. feel like right. And so I feel like we're so, we're in that part of remote work where everybody yeah. else is like, no this is gonna be too difficult. You know, there's too many issues and that kind of stuff. But eventually just like the car I think this is going to take over what countries do you think are doing a good job so far of like you said being nimble and kind of uh instead of trying to like like squash uh these new issues that are popping up kind of like embracing them and rolling with them
0: uh well the most famous one is estonia of course they're really advanced they they just launched um a digital nomad visa as well so people from outside of europe can can register in estonia and then they have access to europe for a year which is brilliant and now, during COVID, I've heard of a few Caribbean countries that have also... Barbados. Also looking, yeah, Barbados, uh, Curacao is looking into it, and there are some other uh, places. Um, but so far, I think uh, Estonia is the most advanced because everything is digital. You know, those other countries require you to actually visit the country, which is also an advantage because then they have money coming in, of course. And I know there are some other countries that are investigating these things. And um, um, yeah, something will happen. But of course, now the priority is not uh, there, um, which also means that if you do move quickly as a country, that you're really standing out. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think this is an invitation for maybe the younger, smaller, more digital countries to look into this issue and to offer solutions. Um, Think about it. A digital nomad will, that registers their company somewhere will spend money on registration or on accountancy fees. Uh, if they actually visit the country, they may, you know, they go to co-working spaces, they rent um, a place to stay, they they maybe hire people, they you know they they go out to eat. Um, there's an influx of money and brain power because they connect to like-minded people, and new initiatives may um, may start.
1: Yeah, I think, um, unfortunately, I'm a bit of a pessimist when it comes down to these things. And I think that most countries are going to wait until the last possible moment to kind of like make these things happen. But I am very excited about the countries that are smaller, that are nimbler, like Estonia, that is kind of seeing the future written on the walls and is taking action now. Um, before we kind of wrap up, uh, for, you know, people that are listening that aren't already immensely impressed by you, you know, having raised so much money for charity and being knighted, uh, in, in the Netherlands, uh, you're also a big time author. You've published over 30 books, uh, which is crazy. What are you, uh, working on at the moment? And you've mentioned your business several times. What is your business today that people can check out and they're interested?
0: Well, I actually... After the charity project, I became a speaker. I was asked to to talk about not only charity, but how to um, get big results with limited resources. And I gave over a thousand keynote speeches and two TEDx speeches. And more and more people started to ask about my personal experiences. So what choices did you make? How did you realize your dream? How do you achieve the results? So I started writing books. um, And my central theme is no excuses. They call me the Mm -hmm. no excuse lady. And my first book was called What is Your Excuse? So I wrote about that. I wrote about how to live your dream, um, digital nomads, um, a handbook for world citizens, uh, but also about relationship with Mr. Wrong, uh, which is also a growth opportunity. You know, you can point at this person or this government or whatever, but you're, you always have a choice whether you want to step into a story or whether you want to step out. And it's better to, you know, to take control and to learn something. So that's the central theme in everything I do. And what I notice when I'm good at something, I get more and more questions from people. Like, how do you live your dream? How do you uh, write a book? How do you turn your passion into a business? So whenever I get more than 10 questions, I just organize a workshop or something, or I write a book about it and then workshops or retreats. So I don't have a business plan or a business model. I just listen very well to what's going on in the world around me and the questions that I get. And the last few years, I've been helping people to write their book uh, in one week. I organize writing retreats in uh, Mallorca, in Curaçao, in the Caribbean, and in Thailand. And I um, already wrote a small guide about how to write your book, but now I'm just publishing my real book, This Is How You Write a Book, with all the examples and tips and experiences. And I've just recorded an e-course about that as well. So... Uh, Writing your book is really one of the main things, because whatever you do, whether you want to become a speaker, whether you're in charity, whether you're an entrepreneur, you always need to communicate. And um, a book uh, gives you the, the authority as an expert. It also helps you to summarize your, your knowledge. You, you leave like a legacy and it can be the basis for a speech, for an e-course, for a training, for presentation, whatever. So, um, And it's something I love doing. Because when it's your own story, for many people, it's difficult to share, you know, how do you, all this knowledge you have, all these experiences, how do you capture it? Hmm. So that's one of the, the main things I do. And the other thing is I help people to become location independent. And then especially Dutch people who, you know, want to know how to get out of the system or who have problems with the system, but also how to become an entrepreneur. And it's also seeing and seizing opportunities, so uh, for example i organized uh, i found cheap cruise a few years ago and i organized an inspiration cruise i had 15 entrepreneurs who joined on a crossing from spain to brazil and it turned out it was the same boat as the first nomad cruise so all these nomads had paid and signed up for the nomad cruise and i actually got paid by the people who joined me on that cruise And then I had to spend the winter in South America. And on the way back, I did the same thing. Again, I had 15 entrepreneurs. And since now cruising is probably not going to happen uh, for a while, I thought, what is another thing that I would like to do? And one of the things on my wish list is to walk the the Cinque Terre, the the five uh, mountain villages in Italy. So I just posted on Facebook, if I go um, do this walk, who wants to join me? And I called it Walk Your Business instead of Cruise Your Business. And I got like 60 people who are interested. So I think uh, in April next year, I'll organize a, a, a Walk Your Business trip to uh, to Italy. And just for fun, I recently uh, bought a piece of olive orchard in uh, South Italy, just because I, you know, as a person without roots, I like the idea of having some land and some olive trees. And now I have so many people interested in in experiencing this life that I'm probably going to do kind of a crowdfunding thing to build like a tiny house on it. And then I can rent it out to people. I can organize events there. So whatever happens to me, I just do what I want to do. I follow my Mm -hmm. passion and I communicate about it. This visibility is very important. And then people who are interested in the same thing will connect and something may... um, emerge from that. And Mm. it may not, but then I'm still doing what I want to do. So it's a very different idea of writing a business plan and, you know, Mm. going for it and nobody may be interested in it. I do what I want to do. I communicate about it. And most of the time people join and I add value and, you know, together they connect and, and it's, it's a win, win, win situation. And that's what I'm always looking for.
1: Yeah. I think that's like the, the really amazing thing about the internet is that If you're interested in something, there's probably going to be other people interested in it as well. So you can truly like, you know, this idea of like the passion business, you know, that you can be really interested in something and build a business around it. And there will likely be other people that will join you on that. Um, but in wrapping up Esther, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate you, uh, coming onto the podcast. Uh, I'm going to have links to everything that you mentioned, uh, on the website and, um, Yeah, thank you so much for for coming on. I really appreciate it and uh, all the best. Uh, And I will have, like I said, a link to your website in the podcast show notes. Esther, thank you so much for coming. Uh, I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. It was really nice. Thanks.